course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced with a lackadaisical attitude by Magic Matt Allen. We could also hear on Sirius XM and also on Not So Serious XM and Lighthearted XM. I got I got weird little pieces of chicken here, Mark. Are these yours or mine? Mark Boyer always buys chicken, and uh, he gave me his by mistake. Oh. We got a real special guest. If you saw the uh, the promo material, we have well, some folks call him Sergio Barrer. Others call him Sergio Bear. Others call him the musical Jew with a nice beard. We can't hear you, Mark, because Matt has wisely turned your microphone off. Well, that's just lovely. <laughs> you never sounded better. We like having famous people on the show because the fame kind of rubs off on us. You know, we had Matthew Berkowitz, son of cinema, on. and uh, Who else was famous? Uh, Pierre Salinger. Jerry Lewis was on for two and a half seconds uh, one time. <laughs> oh, and we had uh, the lovely fella that uh, a song was written about, but no one knew where he was. Oh, P.F. Sloan. Yeah, we had P.F. Sloan, very famous songwriter, was on the show, and he was stunned. <laughs> he came out of the show, and we went outside and went, what? The, what where the were we? What was that? <laughs> <laughs> and you will, too, sir. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, Unfortunately, P.F. Sloan is no longer with us. I think, I think he's already and scratching his Pearl. noggin. Pearl isn't with us, either. He's imaginary. Who, who's imaginary? You are. You're imaginary oh, Burl the imaginary Burl Bear? Yeah. Yes, that's me. I'm supposed to be the legendary so, uh, what is our guest's claim to fame? Guest's claim to fame is, well, he's famous for being famous. That's one thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the greatest trick anyone can do is being famous for being famous. I used to watch What's My Line on TV, uh-huh. and you had uh, you know, Dorothy Kilgallen and all these people. Right. They were all just famous for being famous. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, Bennett Surf. Bennett Surf, yeah. I always thought it was the, the greatest trick of all time was the devil... Uh, convincing people he didn't exist. Well, he did a good job because he doesn't exist. Well, there you go. There <laughs> there you is, go. We're monotheists <laughs> to the core around here. Three Jews, no waiting. Three and a half counting Matt. Milton Burrow gave him a uh, distinguished the committee of Milton Burrow and, and Matt were good friends. Oh. Uh, as good friends as one can be with Matt. And uh, he gave him the distinction of being an honorary Jew. Cool. Now, yeah. either that was meant as an insult or as a blessing. <laughs> well, one never knows. <laughs> It, de- it depends. Sergio Barrer, or Barrer, however you want to pronounce it, is a very famous international composer who has had a very bizarre life. I didn't think it was bizarre. <laughs> I thought it was quite fascinating. Well, it is a fascinating life. I mean, you know, I, I've been to Pacoima a couple of times, but, you know, I've, I've never been to Russia. <laughs> no, I think you've been to Russia, Sergio. Neither have I. Or, yeah. or Ukraine. Ukraine? Well, my dad was born there, but I was born in Mexico. Well, so that's a clever trick. Yeah, yeah. He he emigrated when he was five. How does one go from emigrating from the Ukraine, which my father did also when he was seven, uh-huh. how does one wind up in Mexico? Well, when they close Ellis Island, uh, you cannot go to the United States, so he was sent to Cuba. Oh. And for a person that was 
born around Kiev and stuff, that was kind of hot. 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 Like, take us out of here now. Yes. Yeah. Hot. <laughs> like, we're going to die now. Hot. So they went to Mexico. There was a ship to Mexico, and they went to Veracruz, and they settled in Mexico. There's a lot of uh, of those Judaistic people in Mexico. See, I did not know that. There is some. There's more than two. Yeah. I know there's. I know. I know a lot in Canada. Well, yeah. Canada and Mexico are not the same country. That's correct. They're different, you know, <laughs> sides of the U.S. But right. I wasn't aware there was a uh, a large uh, Orthodox. Were you Orthodox? No. 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 God. No, I'm God not. forbid. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just long-haired. That's all. Yeah. all right. he's, he's not to be confused with the Hasidic. Well, I was just wondering, you know, with the tefillin and the black jacket and the hat. Yeah. No, the giant fur hat. No, just no. whether you don't wear the giant fur hat. Always wondering why they don't melt as they're walking down the street. <laughs> they it's do difficult. sometimes. Well, I told you the bumper sticker I created for the ultra-orthodox. Yes, what? It says, eat kosher, live trafe. <laughs> That's my motto. You're going to be observant. What is it going to observe? Are you going to observe the dietary laws that were mostly man-made? Are you going to observe the spiritual teachings, which are universal? Let's go for the spiritual ones, shall we? Let's try that as a change of pace. So you, uh, <coughs> your family was musical. My mom was, yeah. yeah the, the, my mom's side of the family, all the three sisters. My mom was born in London, and mm. my two aunts are had beautiful British accents. Oh, my, my mom too was born in England. Oh, how lovely! Yeah, and uh, lovely. and they all play the piano. You know. Well, wasn't the guys playing the piano considered a sissified thing at one time? Yes, my my cousin, you know, he told my my aunt that he wanted to study the piano, and he said, "No, that's for ladies." What What was he supposed to play? The flute? No, piano. <laughs> well, I I guess nothing. It was at the time it was considered very not very manlike to play the hmm. piano in <laughs> in that family. I don't know. You know. We also had Simon Bear, who was a oh, oh yeah. Yeah, and he he was one of the great pianists of the first half of the of Right, the and uh, I got century. a message once from uh, relatives over in England. He said, you know, we had this uh, buddy, this uh, relative, Simon. He said he was going to go to America and be a concert pianist. We never heard from him again. <laughs> you never know what happened to us. I think he did quite well, actually. Yeah. No, he. if you can get a recording of him playing anything, get it. Yeah, I, you I, can. They sell them on eBay. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so get it. Get yeah, it. I mean, it's... It's amazing. It's uh, we don't hear piano playing like that. Uh, they, the the heyday of the piano was the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. But then it started. Heifetz, you know, Heifetz was a violinist. Horowitz was Horowitz. The, the pianist, and um, that started a decline. When I came to LA, uh, there was two series of uh, recitals of great pianists every year. One in the Dorothy Chandler and mm -hmm. one in Ambassador Auditorium. They had at least seven or eight great pianists show up every year, each series, mm. to give recitals. That's gone. You, you know, you, you can get... No, they, you, you <coughs> get a long, long thing every now and then, or they bring a couple of pianists to play with the Philharmonic, but re the recital, the piano recital, mm. I think... Uh, in the way of the pterodactyl. Yeah, Unfortunately, it's uh, it's it's too bad because it can be a very rich experience, but it requires so much dedication, so much time, and then it requires that the public understands it. Yeah. And so it's like you need a lot of work 
to do that. Yeah. Well, so you chose a career that requires a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wise I, thinking on your part. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It still requires a lot of work. Now, I, I find this fascinating because we've had, you know, conversations before privately, just the two of us, say, hidden away somewhere. And that is, before becoming as famed as you are as a uh, pianist, right. and composer, etc., you had a dynamic career in the field of, ta-da, subtitles. <laughs> Well, that started as I was starting to, as I came here to study yeah. uh, the piano. I had to support myself somehow, and I, and I got a job translating first for dubbing for TV, mm -hmm. and then for subtitles for, you know, big release pictures. I translated all the Harry Potter movies. I translated the Lord of the Ring movies. I, I translated to which language? To Spanish. Spanish, from English to Spanish for the in kid. the theater release mm. version. So if I was in a Spanish-speaking country and I went to see Lord of the Rings, it would be your subtitles I'd be yes. seeing on the screen. You would. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, so I did a ton of movies while I was studying, and then while I was playing, I was still doing some subtitles. So the pay well? You, you yeah, it, it was decent. It yeah. was decent. I was able to support my, kind of support my family and have two daughters and, mm -hmm. you know. Now, your and daughters will be supporting you pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> right, sure. And <laughs> well, both your daughters have been very fortunate. Yes. In their careers. Weren't they both in two hit TV series at the same time? Years yeah. Ago? Yeah. And uh, they're both actresses. Right now, she's the youngest one, Ariella, is doing a pilot about Erin uh, Brokovich, but they they stopped filming at the very beginning, and the oldest daughter is doing uh, a show for Disney, mm -hmm. so she's doing voiceover at at her home in New York. Oh, wow, very nice. Yes, so they are they are working actresses. Well, goody for them. I was just talking to Matthew uh, Berkowitz, son of cinema, as we named him. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, be the uh, TV and film director. I was talking to him. About you actually just the other day, and uh, he's in Connecticut. He left New York to go to Connecticut. Oh, just to you know get a little more breathing room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think. But New York seems to be kind of pulling itself together in the midst of all this excitement. Yeah, it seems that. Uh, but we are still nervous for for Libe, for my daughter because it hit them hard the yeah. virus and and so. But she's very careful about it. She stays home and and so we're not that. Scared about are, that. Bo are both your daughters in New York? No. The other daughter lives in Koreatown here in L.A. Oh, she doesn't look Korean. I know. <laughs> she's, she's learning <laughs> how to look Korean. <laughs> <laughs> she can be very useful. <laughs> but she's doing a lot of voiceover work. Is she doing a project for Disney? Uh, that's Liebe. That's the one in New York. Oh. The, the, one, here. the one in here is doing, you know, she's writing, writing some stuff with my... And she's waiting for the studios to open so she can back on her pilot and on other things. She has some recurring roles in other series. That's good. I should be so lucky. I have a recurring role here on Outlaw Radio doing this show. Um, <laughs> so are we getting rich, aren't we, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was it that made you or, or compelled you to become a composer professionally? Um... 
I realized I could do that like in the 90s. I I was doing the piano and stuff, but somehow something opened up inside of me and I I took composition lessons before, but I knew that the stuff I was writing was, ah, you know. And then <clears throat> you know, it, it was one of these changes that happens and and uh suddenly I could hear the music and I could hear interesting music and I started writing and and I showed it to my mentor who was my piano teacher before and who was who taught me the basics of composition and all of a sudden hey I think I'm writing something and uh, he liked it he said hey this is interesting and so it's it's more interesting once once it starts flowing in your head and I said okay so what can I distinguish as a pianist you know, there is a ton of people doing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. If I can write my own stuff, maybe I'll have an edge, you know? Yeah. And so the, my first big output was all of piano music. And then I, I, I did a record of my piano music and... and uh, people like that. They said, hmm, let's buy this. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's the idea. They're supposed to well, buy it. Yeah, but... I mean, it's a. Uh, and then I started to to think about composing, just in another fi- in other fields, and I went into choral music and into. So I've been getting into that area of composing and and uh, doing. Well, you you wind up doing some pretty big production things. Like this whole thing about Moses. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about. I mean, I've heard of Moses. I saw the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, yeah. I, I don't know. When I get into something, I always try to go for the biggest thing. Yeah. I remember the first song I ever did was I took a poem of of a, a Mexican poet, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, mm-hmm. and I and it had 17 stanzas. And I said, okay, let's start with something <laughs> big. 17 stanzas, that's six, seven, eight minutes of music. And I said, oh, God. But it came out decent and... and I tend to go there. Mm. My fourth composition for the piano was a piano concerto. It's like, how's you gonna do it? Go big or go home? Right, <laughs> right. And the and the Moses was my was one of my first choral pieces. It, and it's an hour and a half. Okay. <laughs> it's like, it's like a lot of work. Yes, I would imagine so. Yeah. How long did it take you to put that together? Four years. So what? How did you support yourself for those four years that you're banging <clears throat> out Moses on the piano? Well two ways I was still doing some translations and I was raising funds for the Moses so, so you, you do that by like going around and finding Moses' friends and say <laughs> <laughs> well Methuselah is, uh, is broke so can't get. <laughs> yeah no no I decided you know I I just went to a seminar once about how to raise funds mm-hmm. with a real top fundraiser and I said well I can do this and I started, yeah. and I and and I started writing letters to prospects and people that I thought might be interested in the project, and raised some money and did some translations and and composed, and uh, that's how the money came. So there you were, working away, brilliant career in front of you, and one day, you're banging away at the piano. What happens to your hand? Yeah, I injured my left hand, but that was before even I composed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just, 
you know, trying to make a... I had a big uh, concert coming up in Argentina and uh, I had some concerts coming up and and all of a sudden I'm playing and I and I jump I'm jumping around and I hit Kind of like uh, Lee Lewis. <laughs> yeah, and then, <laughs> no, that's not exactly the image, but I I make a, a leap in a in a list piece and I land on the little finger and I feel something tear on the wrist and then every time I start performing, I start practicing, I get a swollen wrist. And the problem was that the teacher, my mentor that I was with at the time said, you know, uh, I know a lot of people that that got their hands operated on and then they didn't recover. So let's try to do it without any medical medical intervention. intervention. So I went to chiropractors and they helped. And then I had to go to, to, uh, I met, there was this teacher that my teacher referred me to. Um, and she taught in uh, Amherst, uh, in the summer. So I went (coughs) to see her and she, said well we can we'll have to redo your technique you'll have to relearn how to play but if you do that you'll be able to perform mm-hmm. so there i was she said just drop all the pieces you know and oh, and, and let's learn. start over and said okay <laughs> and <laughs> yeah and then i did my hand did improve and i was able to play uh i i spent 4 years trying to re- rebuild my technique and but at that time is when my ability to to compose opened up, and I was really pulled in by that. So I was performing again with both hands. The time first before I I started to rehab my hand, I said, okay, let's play the repertoire with one hand. And so I did a whole a whole CD. I played with orchestra with one hand. I did. There, there is a repertoire. Mm-hmm. There were two pianists. There is a pianist, uh, Paul Witt- Wittgenstein, that lost an arm in the First World War. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, Ravel wrote a concerto for him. And uh, There's a there's a, a large uh, catalog for one-handed For one play. hand, yeah. But is it left or is it, it all was left-handed? Left hand. It's all yeah. left-handed. It all left-handed. So I had to play with the right hand mm-hmm. because my left hand was injured. But, that must uh, have been it difficult because the thumb's in yeah. the wrong place. It's, it's difficult. It's you, you are playing in the wrong register of the piano most of the time and stuff. But, and some people wrote pieces for me. Mm-hmm. There was a, a couple of composers wrote some pieces for the right hand for me. And that was, and then I, this, you know, I found this other teacher. And, um, and I, Taubman was his, her name. And I went to see her and, and I decided to try to regain the use of both hands. Mm. You know, so the career was kind of starting to really get going and then, the injury to the hand and then the years of re- rehab on that and then um, you know I started to compose and said okay I think this I like this composing thing mm. you know <coughs> do you do it uh, by hand or do you uh, use the computer I started to touch by hand or? I started by hand the the first scores were just because computers were kind of dorky new, yeah you know and and uh, do they have computer programs for composing now? Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. yeah, definitely. There is Sibelius that I use. I remember buying the first copy of Cubase. <laughs> the, uh, Cubase one, really, really. Now it's in ten, yeah. and Sibelius is in ten also. It's like 
and I had Cubase one and two, and I did all the upgrades, you know, and and uh, it was awful to use for notation Cubase. It was absolutely awful. You could <coughs> you could die trying to figure out how do I put that accidental there, and uh, yeah, yeah. Then it got better and better and better with time. But um, but the first the first compositions I can I it was you know. I'm going to tell you, I've, I was friend with this composer, Daniel Catan, another Jew from Mexico. Uh-huh. and um, There's two? Oh, there's two, I, two. I, at <laughs> least two. There is another composer called Bernardo Feldman that was... He, Bernardo Feldman? Bernardo. Oh, Bernardo Feldman. Feldman, yeah, from Mexico. You know, and, and he studied, we studied in the same school with two-year two difference. And, and, uh, but Daniel, he wrote this... He wrote a couple of operas, and he probably is the best contemporary opera writer. He passed away already, but he he was the best opera composer. You know what Schimmer did for him to publish his work? What? He had to write it down. He did it in a computer. So he says, no, in Schirmer, we use manuscripts. So him and his wife sat the whole summer writing the piece by hand oh. so that Schirmer was happy. I said, you really did that? You yeah. really did, and he said, "Yes, I really did that." Him and his wife sat down for three months and wrote an opera that was already written and performed by hand. Yeah, by hand, so that then they have the manuscript of it, so they can tell that that's so. That's kind of come on, yeah. <laughs> you know. How do you do that, right? <clears throat> Sit down for three months and write something that is already written. I had to. I had a a boss who. Uh, did everything he could to uh, obstruct progress. And he had us flowchart uh, the applications we were writing. Okay. Line by line. You had to go and draw little squares and, di- di- and diamonds and, you know, if, you know, if this, go here. And it was just, it took forever. Yeah, that's, that's just very stupid. Uh, I, I do compose with a mouse, though. I don't compose with a keyboard. Yeah. I put the mouse the notes individually because if I start playing and just let it write itself what I'm playing, the hands kind of take over. It's not my mind, it's not the ideas, the musical ideas that I'm putting down. So the way I control it is I put every note individually with a mouse huh. so that I'm hearing it and playing it and putting it with the mouse into the score. And then I don't get uh, tripped by my own habits you know yeah. you know you, you you have to create in your mind the, mm. the music so. so so the the composition as you're writing it is is piano based no nowadays you can write directly into the instrumentation you want no no that's not what i meant um you personally uh-huh. you're 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 playing the the the, the notes I'm not putting them down, or you, you're you're putting them down on the on the score on the score. And, and I just now how do you how do you go from the single instrument score to an orchestra? Okay, the first when you write for orchestra, the first two concertos I wrote, I wrote them for two pianos. First, the top piano is the piano part. The bottom piano was the orchestra, and then wow. I took that bottom part and then expanded it. The Moses. Right. I put the orchestra. I put the whole thing in front of me. Ah. I put. There was no piano reduction for that. I put the singers. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have five, fifteen lines on a on a on a screen, and you say, okay, 
what instrument am I hearing? These are the, the strings. Okay, so you put the string lines and you put... So And then I had to write a, a piano reduction so that they could rehearse it. But it, right. was, it was first writing a lot of lines. And then uh, is that, is, does that take you directly into an arrangement? Yeah. It's not an arrangement. It's just the piece. It's written like that. So I'm I'm totally it's so written. so the, so then the conductor can take that and, just, and know when the strings come in and where the where the woodwinds come in exactly exactly it's a it's a big and I'm <laughs> yeah and and you you run into surprises once you because when I was doing this I was doing this with um, very elementary instruments you know the sounds the samples the sounds were not as developed as now so you develop surprises because you. Th- thought the clarinets were going to sound a certain way that you're used to hearing them in your computer and then suddenly you hear no, them for real and then it's totally different mm-hmm. and um, that happened to me on the first concerto it doesn't happen that much anymore because now the instruments have become more real but um, there was one curious thing about the recording the, when the first piano concerto was recorded in, in Russia mm-hmm. uh, I, I was taking conducting lessons from a conductor here in Los Angeles and he saw a part that I written for the clarinet and said, and he said, you know what? The clarinet is going to have trouble with this part. You, I, I would put that in the flute because of technical difficulties with the clarinet. It's not going to be able to do it. And I said, okay, but I wanted the clarinet sound. So I go and I call the conductor that is going to conduct the piece in, in Kiev. And I tell him, okay, do you think we should move it to the flute? Can the clarinet guy do it? He said, listen, I have one of the in the, the Kiev Symphony has one of the best clarinet players anywhere. Mm. You know, don't worry about it. It's going to come out beautiful. All right. So I send them the score. They record it. Should have gone, but I didn't. And then I hear the recording, and you hear the clarinet line starts going up and down and up and down. And about, you know, 20, 30 seconds before it has to end, it dies. <laughs> it died? <laughs> it died. There was no more clarinet sound there. <laughs> the clarinet abdicated the responsibilities. <laughs> you know, it couldn't do it. It was she could do it. It, it was it, even my 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 a composer friend of mine came and said the clarinet kind of died there, didn't he? And I said, yeah, yeah. I didn't change it to the flute. <laughs> so you know. Did you, you ever? Did you ever change it? No, no. It was it was all recorded. You know. It, so so I lost ten minutes of a clarinet line. Ten second ten <laughs> seconds of a clarinet line, twenty seconds. I won't tell anybody if you don't tell anybody. Right, right. But you get it into these surprises, uh I would imagine it'd be a few surprises. Yeah. Where'd my where'd my clarinet go? Yeah, that where's my clarinet? Then the second concerto, I go to record it in Bratislava, right? And who do I ask for advice about the, the notation? I ask the head of of um he's he's the head copyist of Sony. The scores of Sony go through him, mm-hmm. of the movies. And I asked him about, you know, the strings, You, how much notation do I... said, you know, don't notate anything because they get more upset. They they do... You know, string instruments use bowings, right? Mm-hmm. When you have to go up bow, down bow. And you don't know... And my friend told me, you don't know them very well, so let them do it. So I didn't put much indications. I arrived there... The conductor is going to record the next day. And he told me, you know, I haven't seen a, sc- a score so sparsely notated in my life. Well, you told me not to. 
But and I told them, but my friend in LA that works with the with the studio orchestra told me, you know, you, you didn't need it. They said, no, I do need it. And so we did. He did his best, and it came out all right. But these kind of things, if you don't do them, you never find them. You start doing things, right, and then all of a sudden you get the surprises. Yeah, the uh, education is entirely different from practice. Yes, once not entirely, but you know, you well, can, you know, you 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 know, you know what an A what an A chord is, right? But all of the things that go with the A chord, you learn on the job. On the job, yeah. There's yeah, a lot of learning. Nothing, on the nothing, job. nothing better than experience as a teacher. Yeah. Right now, I'm I'm learning how to do it for for wind symphony. You know what a wind symphony is? That's uh, usually hard. after I have uh, some chili. <laughs> <laughs> It's a different kind of wind symphony, Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm 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 uh, <laughs> taking some of my piano concertos and doing them for wind symphonies. They are hundred piece uh, ensembles, all winds, no strings, because the you know the tradition in America, the football games have bands, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. And football does have some money in America, right? Yes, oh yeah. There is, okay. So universities also have gotten, you know, so they have to have bands and they have to train the bands. And the symphonic wind ensemble has really grown here. And it's very, they are looking for new works, whereas orchestras are kind of shrinking and they, the, the wind bands are prospering. So is that, um, is, is that woodwind? Woodwinds and brass. Well, Vincent Brett. Oh, okay. You know, it's that's what it is. But for example, you have thirty clarinets and twenty flutes, uh-huh. and you know, it's it's a it's a band. No, type a of trumpet, thing. saxophone. Yes, they do. But you know, you have three, five trumpets. But the woodwinds, you have them in quantity. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning how to do that. Just learning that, it's so much work. You know, it's another different way of writing and everything. But you know, hey, what the hell? Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. Right? right? So what, what of, of the pieces you've done, of the performances you've done, what what to you has been like the highlight so far? I think the Moses so far, because that was that was really... Uh, that was, uh, first of all, in the, in the symphonic world, you are encountering a lot more dissonance than what is acceptable in the choral world these days. So I had to scale back my dissonance and go more into consonance. And I liked it. I liked writing more accessible music and also to have to put the whole story into words. I did the the libretto too. I, I took verses from the Bible and did it all in Hebrew, by the way. I know Hebrew. So... Mazel hmm. tov. Thank you. And I... <laughs> So, and then to see the whole thing sung and performed by a 25-piece orchestra and, and the whole hour and a half and just go through it and everything, it was very satisfying. And I think the only problem was that the place that we recorded it, Wilshire Boulevard Temple, mm-hmm. was very loud. So you couldn't mic the, the mm-hmm. instruments, but you had to mic the singers to get the, the right, right balance. So we do it, and then... We didn't mic the instruments for the performance, so th- so you don't get the sound of the instruments. You only get the sound of the instruments through the mics of the singers. So it all seems like it's on the background. Wow. So the recording didn't come out the way oh. it should have, you oh. know? As you said, experience, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I belong to Temple Israel of Hollywood. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was Woodshire Boulevard. Yeah. And you know the, the yes. renovated sanctuary? Yes. It's absolutely gorgeous. So that was really, really quite an experience. And it was very satisfying because, I mean, to tell the whole story and also to see the reaction, the reaction was very nice. No one started throwing things at you. Not only that, but they didn't go to sleep. That's, that's <laughs> important. Isn't that? Right. You know? And right. people were paying attention, and they liked it, and they enjoyed it, and I was very happy. Now, the problem is now having it to redo it, some, you know, having it redone. We did one movement, another one half the next year again, and then we haven't done it because... It takes a lot of forces, you know. You need a, a full choir and a 25-piece orchestra, and so not everybody's willing to invest in yeah. doing something like that. So what? Uh, <clears throat> so let's start with uh, what is an um, an operetto, and what drew you to that form of this music? Okay, this uh, is this was an oratorio. Oratorio. The oratorio. Right. Here is the thing: uh, as the vocal music for ensembles was being formed, you had two two schools. One was in Italy and one was in England. In England, they wanted, they did not want action. They they wanted singers singing. And in Italy, they wanted scenes, they wanted drama. So while opera with all their scenes and all the drama was being formed, the oratorio, which was the same thing, but with more choir and soloists without doing anything, just singing, was developed in England. So you have the Messiah, which is the most famous oratorio by Handel, mm -hmm. who was writing in England. And you have the operas being developed in Italy. Right. Yeah. So the thing is, for me, it's a lot more accessible. I was writing for choir. I wanted to write for choir. And I said, okay, this is more choral piece than the opera. The opera is a lot more soloist. You occasionally have a choir here and there, but it's really soloist with an mm -hmm. orchestra. Right? So I wanted... So I decided to go for that. And it's right. easier to get an oratorio performed than an opera. Because the opera, you need stages, you need actors, actors and, and, you know, it's a different thing. So that's what attracted me to the oratorio. That's interesting. Um, okay. Um, Mark's deep in thought now. But my, my brain just froze. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it happens to Mark on occasion. On occasion, his brain, I, his I, I lose the question. Yeah, well... And now I'm, I'm working on another oratorio. That's it. That's it. You know, this is this is. Yeah, that's uh, Doctor Theodore Herzl. Right. And the uh, and the creation of the Jewish state. Right. But the the uh, the question I wanted to ask is, mm -hmm. um, is the um, this form of of opera almost exclusively religious in origin? Uh, Oratorios? No. Now they can do be done with any context. Now, it you know. They can be done on any subject. I saw an oratorio about the universe based on Hubble images, ah. you know, and someone wrote something with a choir. For but, you know, the one, you know, most of most of the things that I saw when I looked it up uh -huh. seemed to have a religious connotation yes, to it. Yes, them. and Handel was the creator of the form, really, and well, yeah. he and he wrote Judah Maccabee and he wrote uh, other oratorios. So there, right. there, a lot of the music has a sacred origin, you know, in general. The, or, the Gregorian chants of the Middle Ages were the, the, pre, the, 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 monks, the monks who were singing. So the, from the sacred came the, the secular. <coughs> so uh, which, which, uh, pe which 
production uh, involved uh, the multiple uh, uh, composers. There was one with uh, like 15 composers. Uh, okay. I was part of a. I was part of the Healthman group of composers. Yeah. And we did the story of David. Oh. And that was a different thing because everyone came from different aspects of uh, writing. There is jazz writers, and there was classical writers, and there was. So everyone did uh, his thing. I I did the scene of where where the prophet Nathan comes and talks with David about Bathsheba and how he screwed up. And Why did all, you screw uh, up? Yeah, and so I had to, it was very operatic what I did, but then there was a uh, a friend Chris Harden he he did the Goliath. And David, and what he did was he did uh, like a like a football game, like a <laughs> like if it was narrated as a sports event, mm. you know. Yeah, it was narration of a sports event, you know. So he, it, I can it seemed like a competition. It's that, that you fits. know, yeah, yeah. David and Goliath. W- w- e. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I pity the fool. Yeah, <laughs> I pity yeah. the fool. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a. Uh, that was fun, it, and and we didn't know what was going to happen because everyone did his thing, you know. But it came out pretty nicely together. I hope it gets done again soon. That's always a problem with the classical guys. We always want it to be done again, and sometimes it's hard to get people to do it again. So on this this one you're working on now, uh-huh. which I've, I've heard part of, and uh, I posted uh, on the uh, website uh, some of the videos that go along with it. Mm-hmm about the formation of the State of Israel. And mm-hmm. as my daughter and I were talking about where a lot of your support's going to come from, uh, aside from the Jewish community on this, is a lot of the evangelical Christians who are really, you know, breached stand with Israel just long enough to kill the Jews. <laughs> yeah, well, I have not made an effort to reach for the evangelical Christians because I don't know too many. I've, I've reached for the Jewish community. That's the support I've gotten so far. But, uh, you know, anybody... I'm doing a campaign right now online. If you go to Sergio Barrer, mm-hmm. composer, uh, you can... You, there is a campaign for donations, and you can donate. And yeah. whatever... I the, the donation side, I don't think they ask you what your religion is no, or no. your identity. They just want to see the green. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're... Yeah. Well, it, it's not exactly... Uh, the Green New Deal, but it's a good deal for me. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. Well, we're not going to cut carbon emissions, but... <laughs> right. Uh, so why don't, you start, why don't we start with who is Dr. Theodore Herzl? Okay. Let me start a little bit earlier than that. The piece starts with the persecution of Jews in Europe in the Middle Ages. I had to go there because without that, you cannot understand... Theodore Herzl. You've been in Israel in in L.A. for a while, right? Okay. Did you happen to check out the the Magna Carta exhibit at the Reagan Library? No, I didn't. Oh, well, it was it was fabulous, and uh, everyone got a souvenir copy of the Magna Carta, and if you actually read through it, there's a number of places where rights of Jews specifically laid out. Wow. In the Magna Carta, that uh, any any legitimate loan provided by a Jew to someone else, mm-hmm. there was a re- you were required to pay it back. 
Nice. There's there's a whole list of uh, thing you know things yeah. that were in there about Jews and how they should be treated. Yeah, people did, don't know this, but until the, re- the French Revolution, if you are a Jew and you are living in a country, you didn't get the citizenship of the country. You were declared a Jew that lived in France, or a Jew that lived in Germany, or a Jew that lived in Poland. But no. you were not Polish or German or French. That happened after the French Revolution, after the ideas of Voltaire came around, of equality, uh, liberty, and fraternity. And before that, and Voltaire didn't like Jews, but he said, well, even though I don't like them, we cannot just be equal with some people <laughs> and not quite some equal with others, right? right. It's not Animals Farm. Yeah, all the dark green in the back of the bus. Yeah, right. So, no, didn't work like that. And so Napoleon spread that idea in the European continent, and then the country started to let the Jews out of the ghetto, which they were a part of. But before that, there was persecution. There there was the Inquisition. There was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. And I had to put that there so that people that are not very familiar with the history of the Jews will realize, oh, so there was a problem way before the Holocaust. Yes. Yes. And then and then the second part of the thing starts with Theodor Herzl. Right. And and who was he? He was a writer. He was a he was a playwright first and then a journalist. And he realized the need for a Jewish state. The, this was a time where nationalism was thriving in Europe, the second half of the 19th century. And so this would be the late 18, 1800s. The late 1800s, right. So in that time, it was also the time that the phenomenon of anti-Semitism started to occur. Why do I say that? Because before that it was Jew hatred. You know, they hated the Jews because it was a different religion and everything. But then they started to let the Jews into society, but they didn't so much mind about the religion, but there was a class competition. They were going into university. Now the doctors had the competition of doctors that were Jewish, and the lawyers have competition of lawyers that were Jewish, and they didn't like it. The, the middle class of Germany, for example, was feeling threatened. So there was the phenomenon of anti-Semitism. And, uh, and they, decl- they, because, you know, Darwin and, and the things that were emerging, they they had this pseudo-scientific thing that, oh, because they are from a different race, and that's why they called them Semites. And so the same Jew hatred was translated into anti-Semitism. And and Herzl was exposed to it, and um, mainly in the... He read a book by a famous anti-Semite, and um, really attacking the Jews, and, and he realized this is not going to be do well. You know, we are a nation. We have to do something. He wasn't religious even. He wasn't, it wasn't like, he was a, a secular Jew, but he didn't like being discriminated against or to have to, you know, be protected, to, to, to protect himself because he was Jewish. He wanted to be treated equally, and he realized the only way it was to happen was to have a nation. Mm-hmm. And that was his solution. He invented the political solution to the Jewish problem, and it was called Zionism. You know, he wanted, he wanted, hey, let's have a nation where we can be free, where we can do our thing and not be persecuted for it, you know? And so, so here comes this person that, uh, 
he was not he just said this is what we have to do and uh, it was he in one of his quotes he said you know the planets are not supported by anything if you want something to be supported you can support an apple on a table and it's supported mm -hmm. but the apples and the big things in the universe are not supported by anything the only thing that works is their motion so I, I have no background to do this or no authority to do this but I can move and with my motion I'm going to create this I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this movement you know right. so <coughs> so we did so, that <coughs> from uh my uh, history, mm -hmm. I'm second-generation right. American. Right. My family immigrated in, two, in 1911 okay. from uh, Polish-Russia as the border. Right. Uh, the border shifted after the revolution. Right. So Poland before, Russia afterwards. Okay. But whatever, uh, Grudnia. Um, and they came here, settled in Berwick. Uh, that's a small suburb outside of New Orleans. In okay. Louisiana, uh, and eventually ended up here in L.A. My grandmother and her sister uh, started um, the first chapters of B'nai B'rith oh. and uh, Zionist organizations right. uh, organizing the Jews in the community. Um, and my father, born in 1917, uh, so 1915, um, his name was uh, Herzl. Oh. Wow. And he was named after Dr. Theodore Herzl. Wow. There was, uh, when I was, I don't know if it's there now, but when I was growing up, you know, off of Crescent Heights, there was a uh, um, a, a, a Jewish religious school, the Dr. Theodore Herzl. Right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. he's considered the founder of the Jewish state. He's yeah. considered the, you know, you see the a picture of, David Ben-Gurion reading the Declaration of Independence of Israel in 1948, and there is a huge portrait of Herzl above his head. Mm. You know, it's uh, right there. <laughs> yeah, you have Hold the picture. Hold that up to the microphone. So yeah, so yeah. you can go to the, his website and check it out. Yeah, in SergioBerrer.net, you can you can find some of the pictures of what I'm doing with with this project. Yeah, I really like the video of uh, Herzl's vision that you made, and uh, I recommend people to watch that. Very, very well done, and uh, has his words, what he envisioned for the state of Israel. Right, and they are not public yet because I, I, you know, it's not recorded with live people, and it's not. I didn't use any dead people. Though. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the dead no. people's orchestra doesn't sound very. Good. Right, <laughs> right, or the 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 computer sound orchestra doesn't sound really. <laughs> they can only sing ahs and nos. Actually, I have a program where they can sing what they're singing, but it's so much work. It'll take me a year to just oh. do this thing. You want real-life people. No, yeah. So, yeah, you want real-life people with expression, with emotions. Mm -hmm. How far know. away are you from having this project completed? Uh, I'm in the last movement. I did... It's five parts. The first one is about Europe. The second one is about how Herzl transformed from being a secular Jew into an activist. The third one is Herzl's vision. The fourth one is his real work, Herzl's work with diplomacy and with um, travels. And the whole, the whole thing of Herzl working was eight years. In eight years, he did all the work he needed to do. And then the fifth chapter that I'm going to go into is going to be the pioneers in Israel and how we went from Herzl's death in 1904 to the state of Israel in 1947. And we're going to use a lot of the pioneer songs as themes for this uh, 
it's it's a tradition in classical music actually to use folk songs you know mm -hmm. and and embellish them and work with them and so i'm going to work with some of the pioneer songs and going to tell their story in 1917 balfour uh declared that there was going to be a country for the jews in palestine and uh, all these things are going to be dealt with in the last segment and then we end with the declaration of independence so we go from the middle ages to the declaration of independence and Quite a the, journey. yes it's uh yeah i've already been on this journey for two and a half years myself i'm sick and tired of it by now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean just the chapter of Herzl's vision uh -huh. it's six and a half minutes right I read two books to do that oh. how do you condense two books in six and a half minutes yeah so those are interesting projects yeah. to me <laughs> you know how do you well you know you, you think it's it's not that much different than you know writing a play right uh, how do you do and say uh, in two hours in a play somebody's life yeah or a book you have a novel that is 400 pages, and then all of a sudden you have two hours. Come on. Yeah. Put it down. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a strange thing that has little or nothing to do with this. Uh -huh. in, in the beautiful state of Texas, if uh, you want to interview a prisoner uh -huh. for a literary project, let's say uh -huh. writing an article. Right. You're writing an article for a blog or something, no problem. If, however, you were doing an in-depth, book-length, uh -huh. investigative piece, uh -huh. we don't let you near him. Really? It's just the opposite of what a sane, rational mind would do. If it's a superficial piece of fluff, you can have access. If you're doing in-depth, no. Why? I and don't why know. Do you, why, what is the rationale behind that? I have absolutely no idea, and no one has been able to figure it out. <laughs> it is one of the great mysteries of the 21st century. Scientists are working on this. Will someone please find the logic in this? If you have a contract with a publisher... For an in-depth, in-depth study of this case, nope, sorry. If you're some <laughs> schmuck wants to write a blog post, yeah, come on in. I haven't well. figured that one out yet. <laughs> very Though Kansas is another interesting one. If you want police reports, uh -huh. which supposedly police reports belong to the public because your taxes pay for the police department. Right. So if you want a police report, you say, hello there, I like a police report, I like this one. Maybe they'll charge you for the cost of the paper. In Kansas... You get the cover sheet. No information, just the cover sheet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and anything beyond that is up to the law enforcement officer involved, whether he wants to cooperate or not. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it seems to fly in the face of what the actual laws That's... are and what the regulations are, but I guess there's a certain amount of states' rights involved on what they want to mess with you on. Other places, they'll just give you everything. I had wonderful experiences in Alaska, for example, yeah. They're doing a book, and I said, uh, uh, I'd like if the guy took me in the back room, Xeroxed off everything, and what he charged me was the cost of the paper $12. Wow, which was very nice. I did what in uh, state of Washington, very complex case, uh -huh. went to the uh, the state supreme court, and there were several trials involved. They had never had anybody ask for what I asked for. They said, What would you like, Mr. Bear? They said, Absolutely everything. And they had a room about the size of this light up lounge filled to the top with boxes of legal documents and depositions and trial transcripts. I want everything. They made me a copy of absolutely everything and couldn't figure out what to charge me, and they never did. <laughs> to this wow. day, I've never gotten a bill. I had to rent a van 
to carry away all the, the documents. And do you actually read all the documents? Oh, I had to. I had to read them all, and I, I had to do what you were talking about. How do you take... How do you take uh, exactly? And, and reduce it down to... Something yeah. that someone would want to read. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Did you give the judge the excedrin he wanted? <laughs> yeah. There's one judge who accused himself by screaming, this case has given me excedrin headache number 851, <laughs> and I quit. He stormed out of the courtroom. <laughs> um, what what kind of exciting headache did you get from doing that? <laughs> no, the only headache he got was trying to get money from actually selling the book. Well, yeah, we did okay with that one. That's that's. Oh, good. But I came up with an interesting technique. I don't know if this uh -huh. works in any other field. I would take these uh, stacks of papers, right? Put them all. I had a great apartment in Walla Walla on the third floor of this building. I with bay windows, and I'd open up the windows all around. And at night, the wind would blow through whoosh, and blow all the pieces of paper all over the place. Uh-huh. So I'd have to go pick up all the pieces. They weren't in order anymore. Uh-huh. They were now just totally, you know, messed up. And in having to put them back together, I could find the relationships between things that aren't apparent if things uh -huh. are classified and in order. So you mix them all up. Then Where does this page go? Yeah, and how, do you, it, how do you organize what, it? What does it relate to? What is it about? How does it connect to other pieces in here? So you're not kidding? No. No, you I actually, actually did, did that. that. Yeah, and it worked. I was able to discover things about the case that no one had figured out before because things were no longer categorized and separated. They were now interwoven with each other. Uh-huh. And I was able to, to discern things that happened that no one else had figured out. Why do you think that we are so obsessed with crime? I mean, I have the shows on TV are crimes, and the other are, I don't know what else, but it's like an interesting <coughs> um, obsession, huh? Uh, I, I would have. suggest, or at least my, my <laughs> opinion, is that, that there is a very small, very small, infinitesimal percentage of the population that is criminal. Right. Everyone else is normal, well, from our perspective, right. non-criminal, right. the way to say it. So there is a fascination with what we can't be. Okay. I can... uh, there is a sympathy. This is where Leslie Charteris wrote The Adventures of the Saint, the Robin Hood of Modern Crime. Now, he was very uh, moral and ethical. Uh -huh. uh, he would cheat criminals and rob criminals. <laughs> uh, and uh, he had all the sympathy. For the outlaw, the one who, you know, who isn't restrained by constraints, who does whatever he wants and gets I away see. with doing whatever he wants. Being as he was so ethical, it was okay. Yeah. I see. Uh, yeah. You could forgive him because, after all, he was doing everything that you can't do, but it was all for good reasons. Okay. I, it's, it's a very interesting uh, field. The, uh, the stupidity of criminals also is very well known. <laughs> yes. Well, some Very, of them really are. Yeah, they, yes, uh, yeah. Yes, majority. Yeah, yes. the majority are. And who yeah. told me the story about the, the you the one about the guy that wanted to deposit his money after? Oh yeah, that's Mark's uh, story. Yeah, yeah, that was me. That was you. Yes, cool. and um, I yeah. you know I I did three and a half years. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> no but imagine imagine the thought process of a guy who robs a bank and takes the money and hands it to the teller and says, "Now deposit this to my account." <laughs> That, that's. I mean, that's just bizarre. It's a complete disconnect between yeah. reality. <laughs> I mean, you thought he could get away with that, <laughs> but um. Anyway. 
uh, what what you find is most most individuals aren't satisfied with one and done like the uh the like our friend punch and the and the people he's worked with over the years uh the uh, greatest uh, diamond thief in the history of diamond thieves uh-huh um the uh the pink panthers which his father founded the the jewelry thief mm-hmm. group um the the majority of the people involved do a thing get their money disappear and never right. do it again just do it once. Thank I you see. so much for visiting. That's all we need to do with once. Yes. Sergio Barrer Bearer. Go, go to my website. Go to the website. Which is? SergioBearer.net. Net. Or also Sergio Barrer, composer, and help with the project. Thank and you. send him lots of money. That's lots right. Of, lots, lots of shekels. Yeah. All right. Massive dinero. Okay. Oh, that was a muscle tough, Burl. Okay, Thank you. Thank you very much. What? Uh, what's next, Burl? Magic Man Allen on the deepest of decadence live for the Lightning Clouds and Allen Radio Live. Dot com. Oh.